I just slapped myself in the head, but I <laughs> used my left hand, which has a very, very, very big wedding ring on it, and that really hurts. <laughs> I was trying to do a good you sort idiot. of forehead slap sound for you to use as B-roll, but now I've got a Thanks. now I've got an oh, indent no. on my skull. You're really put it, putting your heart into into your folio work. <laughs> I mean, it is it is episode fifty. We have to pull all the stops out, you know. So in the um, the weeks since our last episode, mm. we have both actually done a decent amount of travel, haven't we? We have. Uh, I, in the weeks running up to our last episode and since as well. Yeah, the last episode was actually right slap bang in the middle of a period of travel for me because I went on like three holidays within a month of each other. Right. <laughs> Uh, some of which I was planning on talk about in the last episode, but we didn't we didn't have time. And then you, yeah. So I've been actually to three places over the past month. Would you believe mm. month and a half? But anyway, uh, the first was Brighton in the UK for the Develop Conference, mm-hmm. and uh, Develop was fantastic. Like, it was really great. Mm. Now, just for some context, you used to live in Brighton, didn't you? I did. I lived there for one and a half years. Mm. That's where I met. Uh, Chris, who has features on this show once before, and it's it's also where I met friend of the show Liam, uh, who all three of us ended up moving to Japan. But yeah, mm. it's a um, it was my first time in Brighton. Actually, I've been to um, the UK countless times before, but never to Brighton. Mm. Uh, I think the closest I've been to Brighton previously was Bognor Regis. <laughs> <laughs> which is takes the cake as the most ludicrous name in the United Kingdom. Well, actually, there's probably... I don't, I don't, I don't know if I that's think, true. I think there's probably a fair few that are a bit more ludicrous than Bognor Regis. Mm. But anyway, um, Brighton, yeah, it's a very nice place. It's very similar to Adelaide, where I'm from. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like, if you, <laughs> if you spread it out slightly mm. and you clean it up a bit... Mm-hmm. Uh, and you make it hotter, mm. and you switch you switch the architecture from southern England to colonial, right? Then you get where well, you probably get a lot of places, but you also get Adelaide. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a few changes you have to make. Yeah, well, just in terms of you know, <laughs> I mean, when you're walking around Brighton, there's so many things to look at. You know, there's like street, mm. there's street art, and there's funky little shops, and there's you mm-hmm. know weird, trendy looking people, and uh, seagulls, mm-hmm. and what else is there in Brighton? Just it's very sort of vibrant, colourful kind of place on many levels. It is. You know, that is true. I always actually think of uh, Brighton as the UK's answer to San Francisco. Yeah. It's actually quite similar to San Francisco in a lot of ways. It's, I think it's famously quite similar to San Francisco because it has a similar sort of, sort of young, vibrant lifestyle. It's also, I think, San Francisco is the gay capital of America and Brighton is the gay capital of the UK. It's the first place that gay marriage has ever happened in the UK. Mm. So it's got that similarity as well. The Green Party is the... I think the one Green Party MP in Parliament is from Brighton. Okay. (laughs) Um, This is a very sort of hippie uh, area. So if you you spread it out and then make it a lot more dirty... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, then, then you get San Francisco. Yeah, and it's quite hilly as well. Yeah, so um, I was there for the, de- the Develop conference, and uh, mm. uh, yeah, Develop is fantastic. It's like a sort of a, a more relaxed, scaled-down version of GDC, the Game Developers Conference, which is the annual mm. massive conference that happens in San Francisco every year. Yeah, it is quite a lot scaled down, to be clear. <laughs> what was really nice was... 
just that it was very kind of unpretentious and very uh, mm. relaxed and sort of low key. Mm. You know, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you go to GDC, uh, it's very um, sensationalized and dramatized at times. Like, and now right. that kind of thing. Right. Whereas, whereas developers kind of like, um, you know, somebody, some guy just walks up on the stage and says, uh, okay, uh, well, it's about time now. So I guess we'll start the keynote. So uh, if everybody's ready, uh, we'll get going. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of, there's no music and there's yeah. no pyrotechnics yeah, and there's yeah. no, it really is for developers as well, right? It's not like GDC, I think. It's a developers' conference, but big studios make announcements there. Right. And the general public are interested in things that are announced at GDC, which mm. isn't really a thing at develop. No. The other thing that was really nice about it was that it's at the Hilton, which was uh, it's just on the beachfront. Mm-hmm. And it means that, you know, these kinds of conferences, they're basically inside convention centers, and most convention centers are windowless. Mm. So after a while, you sort of get, it gets all gets a little stuffy with, you know, people everywhere and in these enclosed rooms. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about developers is that you could just, you know, if you meet somebody interesting, you can just say, hey, you want to just go out to the beach and sit there and talk for a while? Mm. And just, you go walk out right at the front of the Hilton on the beachfront, and uh, there you are, it's the sea right in front of you. Mm. And if the... Um, the Brighton Beach has all those stones that you can massage your buttocks on, which is nice. Everyone loves the stones at Brighton Beach. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, so it was a it was a really really good event. And the other thing that was really nice, which they don't have at GDC, at least mm-hmm. as far as I know, um, mm-hmm. is a online business pitch matchmaking system that you can use. So you, I think, because they have relatively fewer people that go. Mm-hmm. You can that this becomes more feasible where they have this. You write like a, a profile for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and you submit it, and then basically you read other people's profiles. You tick some boxes about the things that you're offering and the things that you're looking for, mm-hmm. uh, and then basically you can go and sort of pitch meetings to anybody on the system. Mm, interesting. And pretty much everybody signs up for this system, so it's fantastic. You can like search for. I think I might like to make some, you know, like, uh, you know, graphics freelancers or something. And you can go and mm. search and find a big list of them. And then you say, this person looks interesting. I might meet this person. And then your meeting schedule is actually handled by the system itself. So people can pitch sort of meeting slots with you. Mm. When I say pitch, I mean they can propose meeting slots with you mm-hmm. at the times that you've set as being available. Mm. And this is a really fantastic way of uh, of meeting you know, new people. Mm. I think one one problem with larger events like GDC is that the actual opportunities for meeting new people are usually, if you are not fortunate to have somebody who can introduce you to people, mm. it's kind of limited. You know, you, you meet people standing in a line. Yeah, like people are usually, they're going with other people. They're already in their own cliques. Exactly. So it's quite hard to, yeah. unless you're actually, they do have actual networking events. But those can feel a little bit cold. And it's also the luck of the draw. You know, who do you know? Like, right. If, if you're specifically there to talk to publishers, for example, mm-hmm. then, you know, you've, you've got to be quite lucky to walk into one of those networking events and pick the right person to talk to in order to, right. you know, to, to meet the, the people that you want. So yeah. this system was, was really, really good. It's not the only, um, confer- you know, many, many conferences that are on the sort of medium scale have these kinds of systems. But uh it just made the entire event from a business point of view and from a, a an experience point of view as an attendee mm. going to seminars mm. and just, just rounding it off the whole thing 
uh, it just made it much more. Um, I guess the the value was much better. You know, mm. just the, the the amount that you come away from the conference with was uh, just just felt really really good. So we've decided that um, we would like to uh, see if we can go every year to develop. So oh wow, okay, yeah, that'd be cool. It's not too expensive as well, right? Like GDC is quite an investment. Both the tickets themselves are expensive, and accommodation yeah. in San Francisco is incredibly expensive. Yeah, but uh, developers a bit easier. Yeah, it's very very affordable, um, relatively mm. speaking. And then then when you you factor in what you actually get for the money that you pay, right? As I've described, you know, yeah, it's excellent. So, yeah. um, the next place we went was um, mm-hmm. Vamland, which is uh, right in the west. A part of Sweden, mm-hmm. just next to Norway. Was this a holiday? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think I believe astute listeners might recall that actually last year in summer I went there also. Mm. So we're visiting the same friend. Uh, he is a um, board game, role playing game, to some degree, video game connoisseur. Hmm. So he is the the man to talk to when it comes to all issues Robotech the RPG or mm. Star Wars RPG or <laughs> all those others like D&D and AD&D and Palladium and uh, I don't know I'm out of my league here but Pathfinder yeah you probably Vampire the Masquerade thank you very good Cyberpunk 2020 yes thanks Shadowrun yep that one Shadowrun <laughs> Shadowrun indeed <laughs> He, he's also uh, a uh, an extremely prolific uh, Lego builder mm. on a on a very adult scale. Mm. That is that it's not it's not sort of you know things that you can hold in your hand. It's more like massive tables worth of Lego cities. Right. Uh, he's uh, uh, an amazing person. Anyway, so that was that trip, which was a week, which was very nice. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, just a few days ago, in fact, I have returned from Australia. Very nice. You were visiting the Australian equivalent of Brighton. That's correct. That's correct. Or the Australian <laughs> equivalent of San Francisco, two steps down. Uh, yes. So, yeah, it was um, really good. Like, it was a, a really great trip. Um, we had some family objectives. Um, my parents' health is... Uh, uh, not in the best places at the moment. Oh, sure. Hope okay. Yeah, but um, it was a, a really wonderful time just to go there and, you know, just enjoy today and not think too much about what the future holds as far as mm. health and things like that go and just sort of enjoy the moment for, for what it is right now. Mm. It was wonderful actually having the opportunity to reconnect a little with Adelaide because mm. the last time that I was actually there in a sort of a capacity to properly appreciate being there, uh, like previous times have been for medical emergencies and things like that. But this was the first time mm-hmm. in a long time that I was able to be there uh, and just really sort of soak it in without having to think about too much else. Mm. Uh, and it was really, really nice. I've never, strangely, as you might be able to deduce from the fact that I have been living outside of Australia for, what, 18 years now and I went to Japan and then went even further away from Australia all the way to sw- here to Sweden mm. – up until this point, I've never really felt myself particularly uh, attracted to the idea of living again in Adelaide. Hmm. I don't really know why that is. You Correct me if I'm wrong. You went back for a little bit, didn't you? You did live there again for like a year or something. Yeah, so once. I was there for two years in 2004 mm-hmm. and 2005, and that was the last time mm-hmm. that I was there, mm-hmm. as I said, in a capacity to actually you know, really slow down and appreciate it. Right. But at that time, it was a temporary thing. You weren't thinking, I'd like to move back to Adelaide. No, actually, 
um, we had just gotten married and actually we, we did go back with permanent intent, well, you know, long-term intentions mm-hmm. of living there. Mm. Um, but at the end of 2006, you know, one thing led to another and it just various changes happened in our life mm. uh, lives which just sort of seemed to indicate that, okay, now is the time to go back to Japan and that's why we did. Mm. Mm-hmm. But um, it was very nice. You know, Adelaide is is changed a fair bit. It's um, at least on the surface. Mm. Uh, it feels like the economy is doing very well oh, just good. because, you know, uh, shops looking, um, you know, all nice and clean and busy and, uh, you know, sort of vibrant. And um, a lot of the houses in the area where I grew up, mm-hmm. which is called North Adelaide, mm-hmm. they uh, North Adelaide has always been a, a relatively... Um, sort of, I guess, affluent area compared to other suburbs in Adelaide. Mm. But uh, right now it's looking extremely good. Mm. North Adelaide originally, so Adelaide is kind of like a big square, which is the mm. city centre. Mm. Um, then off the square on the north side, you go up a road and then there's this um, another section of blocks that's separated from the main square, which is North Adelaide. Mm. And surrounding the entire thing is a belt of parks called the Green Belt. Mm. Uh, and then, and then now in in modern day Adelaide, um, once you go past that Greenbelt Parks, then you have all of suburban Adelaide around it. Hmm. So North Adelaide originally was intended as a sort of a residential area, and so because of that, as you know, over the the century and a half, I guess, of Adelaide's history, um, North Adelaide mm-hmm. has, has always been you know a, a relatively affluent area. Anyway. Because of that, the architecture in North Adelaide is is quite antiquated, as in uh, nice classic buildings, and a lot of them are sort of heritage fund protected. Mm-hmm. And actually, the house that I grew up in is also a heritage listed house. Mm-hmm. That means basically that if you want to do any kind of renovation or repair or fixing of it, you need to get approval, mm. and the city council will have some say into the colours and the the manner in which you change the facade of the house, especially. Right. It's looking really, really fantastic. So a lot of the houses in North Adelaide, they're all sort of freshly painted and you know, they've nicely sort of tended, manicured gardens out the front and, you know, mm. all the fences are in, in good condition and it just looks fabulous. Mm. And my parents said um, one of the reasons is at the moment real estate is in a little bit of a bubble at the moment in uh, mm. in, in Australia and um, a lot of the people who – uh, have lived in these houses for a long time now are uh, getting to sort of retirement age or beyond and sort of fixing up their houses and getting them ready to put them on the market. Mm. So as a result, it just, yeah, it just looks absolutely stunning. Mm. And being there, it, it was an interesting experience of reconnection. And I'd be interested to hear if you've had a similar experience when you visited the places where you've grown up as well. Mm. I think that when you live for a long enough time in a foreign country, mm-hmm. you know, you, you become in a positive way sort of hyper aware of yourself because just with the nature of being in a foreign place, people around you feel different and you kind of notice your own reactions as being different or your, right. you know, right. your own um, character as yeah. being different from the people You have something you. to compare yourself against as well. Exactly, right? exactly. So just on exactly as you said just there, because you are constantly comparing yourself to something that um, is relatively different from what you are, mm. you sort of become mm. very hyper-aware of yourself, which is mm. generally a very positive thing. So when you go back to your hometown after a, quite a long, ta- long time in that kind of circumstance, mm. 
um, one thing I found this time is that it was a, a peculiarly sort of confirming experience to go back to Adelaide and discover, wow, I'm really very similar to a lot of these people. <laughs> you know, the people around me here in this city, the way that they talk, the words that they use, their you know, the accent, mm. the 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 things that um they're interested in, their opinions, the way that they express themselves, mm. all of that is sort of very very similar to me. Mm. And I think that I'm able to notice that more uh, more sort of acutely just because I've been away from it for so long, mm. thinking a lot about myself as being different from Japanese people or different from Swedish people. Then you go back and you realize that that person that you've been, you've spent all that time overseas kind of identifying, which is myself, mm -hmm. is actually very, very similar to all the people in your hometown. Right. It's completely obvious. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. In a way, I've felt that more keenly, I think, since moving here to america mm. than when i lived in japan right because somehow maybe because the language is different maybe because the culture is so wildly different in japan it always seemed obvious that i was different right right but like, well, of course of course i'm different japan is such a a, a wildly different culture mm. from the uk right whereas in in america it's almost surprising right we think of ourselves as being quite similar we speak the same language we share a lot of culture a lot of tv goes in both directions like you know british tv is popular here and american tv is popular in the uk mm. so it feels like we have much more of a shared culture and yet i definitely notice mm. when i'm hanging out with people who are from the uk here in america just how much more similar we are mm. and by contrast how how different i feel to many of the americans that i meet here right um and how how much more in a way how much more comfortable it is mm. how much you know it's it's very easy and very relaxing to spend time with british people and be able to make cultural references that i know they'll understand right, right. and be able to just just small bits of body language and, and dumb jokes. Right. And like, I think the way that we interact, especially, I, I, I feel like English people, in a sense, are, are a little bit like Kansai people in Japan. Mm. <laughs> if you were to map Japanese regions onto the entire English-speaking world. Right. <laughs> Actually, Australian people are a bit like this as well, which is that we have very much a culture of of making fun of each other. Right. and And trying to be quite quick with coming in with a joke and and also playing along with the joke and like trying to see how far you can take the joke before anybody admits it's a joke i mean let's be honest it's, it's not like it's not very difficult when it comes to you know pommies because you're pretty weird <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's a good effort <laughs> <That's> a good <laughs> thanks <laughs> and i think in, in america it's, it's just the 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 culture of comedy especially is quite different yeah and so i really noticed that like the way that i'll interact with other british people here and and the kinds of jokes that i'll make and how quickly i'll say you know, things that could be construed as quite insulting things right right <laughs> to british people that i've met for the first time right <laughs> <laughs> because i know i can get away with it right. and it's like you know if I didn't, if I didn't feel that confidence and that sense of comfort around them, 
I I would definitely not want to sort of make that insulting joke or whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, so it is an interesting, yeah, an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, the 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 benefit personally that comes with the privilege of living for a long time in a in a foreign country is completely obvious. You know, mm. the amount that you can take away from it, as far as learning about yourself, which is you know, ironic in a sense, because you were in a foreign place, you would think that the main focus would be learning about the the country around you and the culture around you. But I think as as a byproduct of that constant observation and that constant attempt to fit in mm. to something that's very, very different from what you're used to, just sort of helps you um, in a very profound way understand yourself. Mm. However, yeah, you know, the the there is definitely something to be said for the the this very rewarding feeling of suddenly being put back into a, poop, a group of people that are very very similar to you that have you know that grew up in the same place mm. going back to find your hometown and finding that sort of comforting sense that oh yeah that that's right i come from here mm. <laughs> that's why i'm like an adelaide person and that's why all these people are like <laughs> me it's because i come from here <laughs> right right so yeah yeah that was a nice uh, little interesting um experience that I had walking around on the streets of Adelaide and just sort of, um, you know, walking around sort of uh, bringing back to mind myself, you know, 30, 35 years ago, walking around there as a small boy and, you know, as a, as a teenager as well, just the things that I was thinking about and the things that I was, um, you know, concerned with at that stage in my life and just sort of recalling that I was, as I was walking around. Mm. Yeah. And then having that experience of finding out that other adults uh, very, very similar to me <laughs> because that's where I was, <laughs> I was brought up. You know, it was, I think the, mm. basically the, the sort of the theme of the whole trip for me was reconnection. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was very, very rewarding. Good. So what travel have you been doing other than uh, uh, the travel that you were doing uh, just at the time that the last episode came out? No, well, that is the travel that I've been doing. Uh, just before the last episode came out, uh, we so we had a bit of a run. It was a little. We also went to three places in a month, which is slightly offset from yours. So, just before we recorded the last episode, we went to Yosemite National Park, hmm. which is just a little bit east of of where I live now. Yep. I think it might have been the first national park ever to be opened in the United States, and it's the second national park we've been to. We went to the Grand Canyon a year or two ago. Hmm. Um, and, and then this was our second national park and it was amazing. Mm. It's so good. And somehow we, we put off going for a very long time. Like we've been here. I mean, we're, we're a drive away from it, right? It's a lot. The Grand Canyon was a real trek, a plane, and then like five hours on a bus. And mm. It was a pain to get to, but this Yosemite is like four hours drive mm. from where we live. But we you know, just never got around to going and the drive seemed quite daunting. It's got a bit of a reputation for the traffic on the way in and out of the valley oh, right. being really heavy. And neither my wife nor I particularly like driving. Mm. So, you know, we found all that a little bit off-putting. So we we just kept putting it off. Also, you have to book quite a long way in advance. But eventually we did book and we'd, we'd plan this trip and we planned it for i can't remember if it was i think it was late june early july something like that and it was when it was starting to get warm and nice 
but there would still be plenty of water in the in the rivers because a big part of what Yosemite is famous for is for its waterfalls. Right. But if you go too late in the year, like this time of year in August, the water's all dried out, and so oh, okay. you know the waterfalls are much smaller or non-existent. Mm. Uh, so we, we're trying to get that balance of you know nice weather and and warm, but still plenty of water. And it was quite a, a wet winter this year, so mm. you know we, we we thought we were in for you know we were crossing our fingers. Then about a week or two before we went, suddenly the weather turned really bad. Mm. And it was like raining every day. And we were looking at the weather report, which only went a week out from where we were. And it was looking like rain. And we were like, do we cancel? Do we postpone it? What do we do? And, you know, we didn't want to cancel this trip that we'd book way in advance. But on the other hand, we didn't want to go all the way up there and have it be a total wash, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we were just... Right up until the last minute, we were we were trying to decide what to do. And the, the accommodations that we'd booked, which I'll talk about in a minute, you had to cancel a week beforehand if you wanted to get your money back. I see. If you cancelled within a week, then you, you forfeit your deposit. Uh, so, you know, so we're trying to decide what to do. And eventually we decided, we'll just go and and we'll see what it's like. Mm. And so... We did that, and then, but over the next week, we're watching the weather report. It's still looking really bad. We're thinking, did we make the right choice? And then we were looking at the sort of booking websites and stuff, and all these places started opening up. And we're like, oh, look, everyone's cancelling. <laughs> <laughs> all these hotels and these campsites are getting all these places opening up. We're like, oh, no, what have we done? Right. Anyway, in the end, we were really lucky because we went up, when we arrived, it was raining mm. and there was a bit of a thunderstorm. But that thunderstorm ended within an hour or two of our arriving. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of the trip, the weather was glorious ah. nearly all of the time. One oh, or two wow. scattered showers, but generally just really nice weather. Right. And because the weather report had been so bad in the, in the run-up to it, and all these people had cancelled... It was like we had the place to ourselves. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. There <laughs> was hardly anybody there. Yeah. And we were so lucky because I've heard all these stories about how it's like if you go in the summer during the busy season, it's like a bustling city in there. You know, oh, it's like New York or something. There's just tons of people. <laughs> right. Uh, but it was nothing like that. It was lovely. And we could easily just get around to wherever we wanted. It's much more compact than something like, you know, the Grand Canyon is a national park, but it spans this vast area. Right. Uh, whereas Yosemite is is just this little valley, mm. and you can uh, many of the sort of key attractions, the places that the last few versions of macOS have been named after, mm. right. <laughs> they're all basically within walking distance of each other. Right. And there's also a shuttle service which will take you around, oh, which okay. is free. Wow! So super easy to get everywhere. Loads of nice walks. Uh, beautiful scenery and really nice sort of you feel like isolated because you're in this valley and you've got these amazing mountains all around you mm. and it is a bit weird because like every corner you turn and there's the desktop wallpaper for another version of mac os <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is a bit weird because i did actually recognize a couple of them all right but the the place that we stayed was a place called housekeeping camp yeah and what it what it is is it's like a campsite, 
but it's like a uh, it's like one step short of a campsite. Mm. So you don't have to pitch your own tent. You go there and they have these structures in place. And these structures are composed of like three concrete walls. And then the, the fourth face is open. And then over the top of this, they have like a canvas roof. And then the fourth wall is like this canvas wall that you can open up. Mm. Uh, in front of that, there's a little table and a little space, which is, you know, your own as part of what you rent out. And there's space for a campfire and stuff. Uh, and within this sort of three-walled structure are a couple of camp beds. Mm. Uh, so not just mattresses on the floor, but actual, you know, f- I mean, camp beds. So not not super structured but like a a little metal camp bed uh with mattresses on and uh some shelving and stuff like that so you bring all the stuff that you would usually bring to a camping trip like you know stuff to cook and your food that's going to last you for the time and and all of that Mm. Uh, but you don't need to bring a tent and it's just a little bit more comfortable Mm. and it's all set up for you so that was quite good because we had been wanting to sort of try camping. There's loads of places to go camping near here. And we've been wanting to do it. But I haven't been camping for years and years. Probably the last time I went camping, I was like 18 or something. Right. And my wife, if she's been camping at all, it's also years ago and not very much. I think she might just not have been. Hmm. And so we didn't really know, you know, if it would be for us how much we'd enjoy it. So it was nice to have this as like an easy way to to get into it and give it a shot. Right. And it was super convenient and the location was excellent. And it was uh, and there was a little shop and there were showers and stuff like that. Mm. So it was it was really good. So uh I would thoroughly recommend for anyone who is in the Bay Area for any length of time, don't miss out on Yosemite. It's amazing. I know I'm not the first person to say this, mm. <laughs> uh, but we we didn't go for three years, and uh, if we'd have ended up, you know, leaving without going, that would have been a real waste. So it's definitely worth going. And I think the housecape, housekeeping camp is a great place to stay if you do go. So that was that was fantastic. So that was the first trip. Amazing. Is it? It's great that um, uh, the weather worked out for you. That's what a you know what a. Um stroke of luck really it was yeah yeah it was a real stroke of luck and it was nice as well i mean it was warm because we went up there's a there's a place you can go up to called glacier point Mm. which is you drive out of the valley and you sort of go all the way up to the top and it's like one of the mountains surrounding the valley has this this point on it and you can see the whole of yosemite valley from there so it's these amazing views Mm. but there was still little bits of snow up there so we were worried that it was going to be like cold, cold, you know. Right. But it was nice. We actually walked all the way from there. You can walk all the way back down to the valley, uh, and that was that was like a full day's hike. It was quite intense, mm. but it was it was really nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and then the we'd also planned a camping camping trip. Yeah. A month after that. Right. Or at the end of the month. So you had a had a bit of a had a bit of a taste of it and then you wanted more. Exactly. So well we'd actually booked both of them ahead, but we thought we'll have the taste of it and then we've got plenty of time to cancel the other one if we hate it. Mm, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't hate it. You know, we liked it. So we went the other one was at a state park uh, called Portola Redwood State Park in the mountains to the to the west 
of the Bay Area. Mm. And that was also really nice. That was like an hour's drive from our house. So it was extremely easy to get to. In fact, it was so easy that we turned up, we weren't really that prepared for it. So uh, we, we, we sort of threw all the stuff in the car and then drove off there. And we got there and we realized we'd forgotten loads of stuff. Like we'd forgotten the, the, you know, those little thin mattresses that you roll out to sleep on when you're in a tent. Right. We'd forgotten those. We'd forgotten the pillows that we had, little travel pillows we'd bought. So we'd gone from like this sort of semi-glamping style camping in the housekeeping camp at Yosemite to, okay, we're pitching a tent and we're going to have to sleep on the floor because right. <laughs> we've forgotten everything. Right. And so we tried that for one night mm. and thought this is rubbish and so the next day we drove home picked up all the stuff and then drove <laughs> back to the campsite <laughs> and it was close enough that you could do that so I mean, that was convenient yeah that at, at, <laughs> at that point you know you may as well just go home sleep in your bed have a nice uh, have a nice breakfast have a shower and all that and then drive back and start camping again <laughs> we, was, we actually did have a shower when we drove home the next morning <laughs> Uh, but the, the nice thing, I think a big part of the appeal of camping, I mean, there are many things that are nice, the feeling of being outdoors, the campfire cooking and all of that. But one thing that in particular my my wife really liked is the feeling of getting up in the morning and waking up with the sunrise and with the birds tweeting and all of that. Mm. That is a, a really nice thing that you get with camping yeah for sure that we wouldn't get if we'd have gone home and stayed overnight for sure so and of course the it was, um, it was worth staying the simplicity where you know you've got your tent and all of the stuff that you need mm. to sort of get by for the time that you're camping is with you yeah you know in this little kind of little sort of cubicle of privacy that you have out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> right you know. yeah so so it was nice it was a, yeah, it was a nice little trip. And then that was our plan. We had these two trips, one at the beginning of the month and one at the end of the month that were all planned. And then at the very last minute, midway through the month, this must have been June, so beginning of June, end of June, but midway through the month, turned out there was a gig on mm. uh, for, uh, it was actually as part of this like anime festival, I think, okay. but they had a load of Japanese bands coming over right. to play this gig. And uh, one of them is, uh, I think, my wife's favorite band or one of her favorite bands, which is Capsule. Are you familiar with them? No. You're not? Oh, well, they're, they're very good. They're like an EDM kind of band. I see. And they're, they're very popular, but they don't tour very much. Mm. They haven't played together for years, I don't think. Mm. The last album came out a few years ago. And I think the, the producer has been working on some other projects recently. So he's been sort of busy doing other things. Mm. But anyway, turned out they were playing in LA. So at the very last minute, we decided to buy tickets for that gig. Mm -hmm. And we flew down to LA and wow. stayed for a couple of days. Nice. And it was right around the time. It wasn't June. It was July because it was July the 4th. It was The gig was on July 3rd. And then July 4th, Independence Day, was a day off work. Mm. Uh, and then I took the Friday off work as well. So we, we turned it into a long weekend. Uh, so that was nice. And we got to see LA. It's the first time my wife's ever been to LA. Mm -hmm. And it was also cool to see those bands. Uh, it's the first time they'd ever played in America. And I think it would probably be quite hard to get tickets for them if we were still in Japan. Right. Sort of a funny, ironic thing. But 
although they play much more in in Japan than here, they're so popular over there that the moment tickets go on sale, they sell out. Mm. Whereas here, they're a bit more obscure, so it's easier to buy tickets. How many? Um, how how big was the venue, and how many people were in attendance? Uh, it was not that big. It was quite a small, intimate sort of venue, right? And you know, we got a place fairly close to the front. There was this complicated array. I don't know if this is an LA thing, but they had like four different ticket types. You get, you could get balcony tickets or standing tickets, and then they had VIP and VVIP tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I see. A very very important person, and the the difference in price was like substantial right. between the normal standing tickets, the VIP, and then the VVIP again. And I was looking at it, it's like, if you get the VIP tickets, then you get like free towel or something. Mm. Uh, and you could also, you got earlier entry, right? which, and they said that you could get this wristband that would allow you to go into the front section, you know, the standing section that's near the front, like where the mosh pit would be if this was that sort of music. Right. Uh, so I thought maybe that's that's why, and that's why it's worth paying the extra money or whatever. But then I was looking closer and I was like, well, it looks like if we get there early enough and get to the front of the queue of the standard tickets, then these wristbands are, are dished out on a first-come, first-served basis. So we'll probably still get them even if we don't pay for the VIP tickets. Mm. And so that's what we did. And sure enough, we easily got them. So we didn't pay any more and we got to stand in basically the best section <laughs> And right. all these, you know, all these other people around us had, had forked out for these super high-end tickets, right. and I think they got a little gift bag or something, but it didn't seem worth it to me. Right. The VVIP tickets got you a backstage pass or something okay. like that. Like I could, that makes sense. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, it was fun. It was good. It was a nice little trip. Fantastic. I remember. It is, yeah, it's nice when you um, when you see people that normally would be extremely famous. Mm. Or sorry, normally would be. Um, Playing, well, just as an example, uh, I remember in 1999 when I lived in, uh, no, sorry, 1998 when I lived in Shanghai, mm. I went to see Derek May. Mm. Derek May is uh, one of the sort of um, founding, you know, uh, elder statesmen of techno. Mm. Uh, and he's from Detroit, mm. and uh, I went to see him in Shanghai, and it was like this tiny little club mm. with about a hundred people in there, <laughs> and I'm just like standing right next to him at the at the the um, the DJ booth, just like watching him doing his thing on the vinyl, mm. and just like I'm literally a meter away from him, and then you know the set finishes, and uh, you know I shake his hand and tell him that we must be related and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff, and anyway anyway after after China, his the China leg of his world tour. He goes to he goes to Adelaide, mm. and my uh, my best friend at the time um, goes to see him in this huge venue <laughs> with like <laughs> thousands of people in attendance. And he said, "Yeah, I think I could see this sort of tiny little you know little figure, you know, uh, all the way down the other end of this massive hall, just sort of jumping up and down in front of some record players." <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, sort of a, a hidden benefit of going to a place where the, the kind of music that you like isn't so popular. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it was nice. It's, this was like a, uh, a mini festival as well. Okay. So it wasn't just Capsule. Right. It was, uh, you must know M-Flow. Yes. Yeah, they're a huge Japanese band. Mm. It was actually run by the guy uh, Takahashi, the, like, 
one of the main guys i mean mflow is just three people but mm. i think it was the guy who sort of started it along with verbal who was doing the rapping okay. this guy was doing like the, the the dj bit i think right and uh he was he's like involved in this whole event so i think the event is called otakuest right as in otaku quest otakuest right and it's like an anime event and he seems to be involved in this sort of cross-cultural thing with Japan and the US oh, and, nice. and getting stuff over here. Right. And given that he's, you know, involved with, well, he is M-Flow, he he's, holds quite a bit of weight in the music industry as well. So he can sort of pull these two worlds together. I think that's how he got all these artists over. Hmm. Uh, and M-Flow played as well, which is cool because they're, you know, they're, I think they formed in 98, 99. So they've been around for quite a while in Japan. And they are, you know, a well-known popular band. Uh, but I think he was just really cool and laid back and nice. Like he was just kind of wandering out on stage and introducing all the acts. Mm. And uh, and at one point he wandered out. I think when he first came on, he wandered out and did the, uh, you know, the Star Trek Vulcan hand signal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> great i'm amongst nerds <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, so yeah it was nice it, it did feel sort of nice and uh friendly you know like everyone was just having fun together it was less of a big stadium like putting the band up on a pedestal kind of affair right speaking of bands on the plane to adelaide mm. uh, i was catching up on some movies and i watched the uh the queen movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, did you? <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot. Yeah, well, the, here's the deal. My Basically, I like science fiction movies, but even in the case mm. of science fiction movies, uh, my sort of my standards are very low mm -hmm. in, the, in the sense that it doesn't take much to entertain me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I mean, I just think you get what you pay for. <laughs> and right. if, you know, it... When you think about it, the amount of money that goes into producing a movie mm. versus the amount of money that you actually pay to go and see it, mm -hmm. yeah, you get what you pay for. And uh, right. yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely not a movie connoisseur. I'm, I, I enjoy most movies, basically, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I went into this with a completely open mind. And of course, um, as you might uh, expect, I'm a, a very, very big fan of Queen's music. Mm. So I thought, I mean, really, how good this, how good can this be, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm. uh, kind of like Tron Legacy. Tron is my favorite movie of all time. And so when Tron Legacy mm. came out, I was like, yep, well, that's going to be my second favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Even if it's really, really bad, you know, it's Tron. So it's going to be even. And the, the same with this. It's like a movie about Queen. I mean, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's going to have Queen's music in it. It's going to be sort of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, about the characters of the four members of the band and maybe a bit of history mm -hmm. in there. So, yeah, I mean, how mm -hmm. how bad can it be? How good can it be? <laughs> I don't care. Let's just go and have a good time. You know, that's, that's what I was thinking. Right. So, anyway, uh -huh. my short review of it is that it starts off very poorly mm -hmm. in that, you know, one thing that you often notice with, with bad story writing or dialogue writing in movies mm -hmm. is that everything is so convenient, you know. Mm. Oh, how convenient. This happened at the perfect time. <laughs> mm. Or, yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the first, maybe the first third of the movie was a bit like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, mm. how convenient. 
that happened just at the right moment. Mm. Well, how convenient. That leads as a perfect segue into this next thing that has to happen for the storyline to move on. You know, Mm -hmm. it's all a bit sort of convenient and Mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. Anyway, it gets better. Like as a, about halfway through, I found myself actually fairly engaged, mm-hmm. uh, and at the end of the movie, I thought, "Yeah, yeah, it's good. Like it's actually pretty good." Mm. I wouldn't say the whole movie is really good, but um, as far as the production goes, mm-hmm. very good. Really, you know the um, especially the guy who plays Brian May, who's another one of my musical relatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he, he gets he gets Brian May's accent and his mannerisms down absolutely perfectly. Mm. especially the accent and like the way that he talks mm-hmm. yeah i'm not such an aficionado of, of british accents to be able to identify exactly where that accent comes from mm-hmm. although queen is a brighton band isn't it uh i have no idea sounds plausible i, th- I think they, they <laughs> sounds st- likely yeah i think i think the, they started in brighton anyway we'll have to check that but mm. i don't know if it's a brighton accent or not uh but anyway yeah, and then the um, the attention to detail with the the, the clothes, the props, the uh, I mean, as a as a bass player, one of my um, most favourite uh, bass players is John Deacon, who's the bassist from Queen. Mm. So I had a very very sharp eye on the instruments that they, that he was playing in the movie because mm-hmm. I know the instruments that John Deacon played. <laughs> Mm. And they got them all right, so that's good. Mm. Well done. Uh, also, the, the way that he plays, like the the sort of mm-hmm. the way that he stands and the way that he moves when he's playing, and mm. um, the, his technique mm. as well is is fairly faithfully reproduced. So I assume it's the mm. uh, the same also for um, Roger Taylor and and Brian May, and of course Freddie Mercury. So mm. yeah, all in all, I would definitely recommend it if you're a fan of Queen. Don't worry about the first third or so because it's a bit kind of not great but then after that it sort of mm. it gets fairly engaging as it goes along so yeah. okay there you go yeah I, I haven't watched it it got a lot of uh slack on twitter because uh it won the oscar i think for editing all oh, right and there are some famous clips from it that have been circulating on the twitters where the editing in particular it's just extremely bad. Mm. Like all these horrible, nasty cuts between people as they say, like one second of dialogue and then it switches to another person replying and it switches back to the first person and there's no sort of sense of continuity or right. it's quite jarring. Uh, so anyway, that's that's all I know about okay. it. Okay, yeah. Well, I can uh, definitely recommend it. So also during the flight, uh, we went through Dubai. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Dubai is uh, an in- insane place. Dubai Airport. I mean, it's just it's, it's quite an experience. Yeah, we've talked about it before. It's uh, it's like the, mm-hmm. the perfect sort of Hollywood example of an international future. <laughs> it's, it's just like <laughs> it is. It really is. Actually, it's, it's incredible. And it's so diverse yeah, as well. It's incredible. And the other great thing about it, which I noticed this time, is that um, Dubai is actually an airport without announcements. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. No, I've never noticed, but I have been there. I've been through Dubai many times. And now that you mention it, I can never remember hearing an announcement. Exactly. So actually, I found a sign in Dubai Airport that says Dubai is an announcement-free airport. So it's actually Mm. by by design. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a sort of a, a place of movement and color and sound and and it's like extremely mm. stimulating and despite mm. that you know when you sit down at the gate to wait for your plane mm-hmm. 
it's remarkably kind of relaxed at the same time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is down to the the, the lack of sort of um gate announcements and things like that. So Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think it's also quite well designed in terms of the places that you wait feel reasonably isolated from the places that all the bustling and the movement are happening. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. For for an airport of its uh, busyness and its scale. Right, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So um, before I get on to this excellent segue, <laughs> I just wanted to mention one thing. Um, this is a slight tangent, so it's not a segue, it's a tangent. <laughs> I had the, uh, the amazing privilege of meeting uh-huh. the director of all of Arlanda Airport in Stockholm, Oh really? So he he is the he is the man who manages the airport. Oh cool. Wow, that must be interesting to meet someone like that. Yeah, I mean um uh needless to say he's uh, a pretty amazing person. Anyway, mm. so I it was at a barbecue, so it was a, a great um opportunity to just have a ca- casual chat with the manager of all of Arlanda Airport. <laughs> and uh um my son, who's a big aviation fan, he, he likes aeroplanes mm-hmm. and airports and, and aer- uh, like aviation logistics and things like that. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, you know, we have, we have the director right here. Like, wh- what should we ask him? Like, wh- mm. what do you want to know about an airport? Mm. And my son asked the most obvious question, which actually, after he'd said it, I realized it was a brilliant question because I'd never really thought about it before. Mm-hmm. So he asked him, where does the food come from that you eat on aeroplanes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and yeah, and the director said the director said well you know that may sound like an easy question but it's actually not it's actually mm. very very complicated mm. and then when I thought about it it's like yeah it is complicated because like for example yeah, the logistics of managing all that yeah when you ride an Emirates plane you're eating you just mm-hmm. assume that oh this is Emirates food but mm. you don't really stop to think well what does that mean does it mean that you know, for example, if you catch an Emirates plane in Adelaide to go to Dubai, mm. does it mean that somehow Emirates food has made its way to Adelaide and then you're eating that on the way back? Or right. like, And quite often that? you'll find that the food, like if you catch a flight to Japan, for example, there'll often be a Japanese-themed option exactly. on the menu exactly. that if you caught a flight somewhere else, there wouldn't be. Right. So the director cleared this up for us in in beautiful concise detail mm. he he said well the food comes from the kitchens in the airport mm. all of the food comes from the kitchen in the airport in the airport you've so, just left exactly right so that means for example united mm-hmm. which is famous for very poor food mm-hmm. that food is actually made by the same chefs in the same kitchen as say the food for like Singapore Airlines, which is famous for very good food, it's famously good. So how funny! The the difference comes in the quality mm-hmm. of the ingredients and the amount of time mm-hmm. that the chefs have to prepare it. Mm-hmm. So Singapore Airlines or Cathay Pacific or one of these you know airlines that's known for very good food, mm-hmm. they will spend more for higher quality ingredients in say Stockholm or Dubai at the mm-hmm. at the airport of question. Mm. They will spend more money on the the food, mm. the, the sorry, the raw ingredients, and the amount of time that the chefs have to prepare it, mm-hmm. than say United mm. that will spend less. So United Chef, that it's not like United Chefs; it's basically Stockholm chefs. Interesting. Will be they'll be tasked with making food to a set menu that's issued by United with. So it's so the recipes come from the airline. That's right, and so the the lower the, right. they would have the airline's recipe, lower quality ingredients, and less time to work on it. Which then the, the airlines also have to 
don't know if you got the chance to ask this, but do the airlines, are they responsible for sourcing the ingredients or do they just send the recipes and then the the airport has to source the ingredients based on a budget set by the airline? I think it's the latter, but I don't know for sure. Mm. It would, I think logistically, if it was the former, it would be vastly complicated. complicated. If you imagine all those airlines in a very, very big airport like um, Dubai Airport. Yeah. Uh, managing the the sort of the the important trans- transport of all of those ingredients, right? And if the ingredients ran out, like what would they do? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just say, "Oh, sorry, United, you didn't send us enough broccoli, so right. we've only made lunch for half of your passengers." Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, what it means is that, for example, when you leave um, Adelaide Airport and you leave on Emirates or you leave on Singapore Airlines, two airlines that fly out mm. of Adelaide, the food is actually made in the mm-hmm. same kitchen by the same people. Mm. Mm. And yeah, it's oh, just really the quality of the in, of the ingredients, which is is the main differentiator between those two levels of quality. That's of the interesting. Food. It's funny because there's something about it that almost feels wrong. Like if you didn't think about it and you imagine that the airlines were just responsible for all the food on that airline, you sort of imagine, therefore, that the airlines are competing for the best chefs, right? <laughs> and that feels somehow honest and right Right. Right. (laughs) and like that the the airlines with the best food obviously have the best food because they have the best chefs right but when you hear that the same chef is making the food for both and it's just literally like the airlines can choose on a scale of money like if i put more money the food will be better and if i put less money the food will not be as good right and then it's just literally that you know that United have just decided yeah. <laughs> that they are not willing to pay more money so that you can eat better food. Exactly. It just feels a bit insulting almost. <laughs> so like, for example, the uh, you would remember, I think we've mentioned it before, that um, United do their flight from Kansai Airport to San Francisco, right? Mm. And uh, in the morning when you wake up on the flight, yeah. uh, they have that the infamous, the infamous <laughs> soggy ham and cheese sandwich i mean i guess that's partly down also to the recipe that they've supplied the airline with i mean if they ask kansai chefs please make us this crappy american sandwich then the kansai chefs are going to be like well, okay we can do whatever you like but you asked us to do that like- <laughs> exactly i mean it's a funny thought now to think that like that sort of soggy oily kind of uh, sponge <laughs> sponge like uh, sort of sponge of of you know cardiac arrest that you have on on, on united's uh, you know breakfast meal on your way to san francisco that mm. is made by japanese chefs mm. in Os- in in osaka <laughs> you know working working with sort of cheap japanese ingredients i guess right because i don't right. see yeah. i don't i don't see the sense in like shipping across from america yeah. you know american bread to make that sandwich <laughs> So the, you can imagine how the chefs must must feel making that kind of thing. It's like, okay, here we go, guys. We've got another batch of these sandwiches to make. Hey, let's go for it. Do you think they rotate them? I'm sure that, uh, do think, yeah. Do you think they're like, all right, Tanaka, you're on the, the crap sandwich today. <laughs> and Tanaka's like, oh, can't I be on the server? No, you're on the crap sandwich. Sorry. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting uh, piece of trivia there. Um Anyway, oh, yeah, so interesting. back to the uh, <laughs> back to the lead into my excellent segue. So um, uh, when I was uh, at Dubai Airport, mm. uh, I did what you do when you're at an international airport, and that is obviously, mm-hmm. obviously, you go to the watch shop, of course. <laughs> 
so there I was, Dubai International Airport's uh, watch shop, which was very, very well um, stocked mm-hmm. with um, I bet all, it is. Yes, all of the uh, <laughs> all of the best brands like. Um, Let's see, there was Breitling and Tudor and Rolex and Amiga and Panerai was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, IWC was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very impressed. I was like, wow, oh, go around the corner. Oh, wow, they got that too. Oh, Panerai, mm. nice. Oh, IWC, mm. nicer. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really, really fun. So I learned something very, very key uh, about my taste in watch face design, mm-hmm. which now makes total sense when I think about the watches that appeal to me and the ones that for some reason don't hit the spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is that I really don't get into shiny details on watch faces. Mm. So, for example, a lot of the classic Swiss watches, especially the ones that have dark faces, Mm -hmm. the hands and the the numerals and the the markers and all of that, Mm -hmm. they will be sort of gilted in... Um, some kind of shiny metal around the edges, right? Right. And then maybe you get sort of luminous material in the middle of the hand and then around the edge, Mm -hmm. it'll be sort of this shiny Mm -hmm. outline. In in the Dubai airport, the the showcases for these watches, they have these sort of LED lights on the the rim of the glass pointing downwards at these, these... these watches basically to make them look more shiny and blingy. Right, exactly. Like I think that is, for most people, I think that is part of the appeal, right? Right. And they were so shiny. <laughs> it was, it's basically like looking into sort of a disco mirror ball. Mm. It's like just it's all this sparkles and, and, and yeah. I, when I was looking around at, at the, whilst I was trying to, I was looking at the um, Tudor uh, Black Bays, which were very nice. Mm-hmm. And looking at, um, obviously had a breeze past the, the, the Rolex case and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the, the the ones that appealed to me the most were always the watches that had no shiny elements on them all that were mm. very matte. Mm. Like, for example, the, the Panerai watches are more sort of matte finish like uh, that. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are yeah. Uh, and then yeah. I walk away and I look at my, my faithful, trusty de facto Accord, mm-hmm. which, has, which is totally matte. Like, there's nothing mm. shiny on it at all. Mm-hmm. And I realized, yeah, okay, now I see. <laughs> for me, mm-hmm. I, uh, now I understand the appeal of a shiny you know, these shiny elements. Um, but uh, mm. just definitely for my own personal taste, I, I really prefer watches that are sort of matte finish that don't sort of bling their way to your retinas. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, although I feel like I've had a bit of a turnaround on that. Like I I definitely felt similarly to you, I think, before. Mm. Uh, and the first sort of proper watch that I got, the Stover Marine Original, is also... A very matte. Also, you could choose between a, a glossy and a or a polished and a brushed case for that as well. And I chose the the brushed case, which is the more matte look for the case itself. Right. And the the face being a white face with black markings on it is very sort of understated mm. and 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 matte feeling. But I recently got a a new watch, uh, which we haven't spoken about but i'm a little bit concerned that as these episodes have spread out a little bit and we're not doing it on the two-week cadence anymore that i end up having bought something in between every episode (laughs) (laughs) i don't want it to start to sound like the shopping channel (laughs) Uh, but i did finally i picked up uh 
a watch that I've mentioned on this show many times that I'm I'm very keen on the uh, limited edition Amiga CK2998 from 2016, which we may or may not talk about later. But that features some of these shiny details that you're talking about, right? Uh, on the face, the the hands and the indices in particular, mm. and I think I'm starting to appreciate them a little more now mm. for the reason that. I mean, it's not because of the blinginess when it's in the case with all the LEDs shining out. I actually find that a little bit off-putting still. Right. In fact, I keep on glancing down at my watch and getting worried that I've chipped it or broken it or something. Right. Because I'll look down at it, and it's especially when I'm in a room with like strip lighting or something like that. Right. Like the light, the light will catch it in a certain way mm. that makes you think like that there might be like there's some dust or some scratch on the uh, on the the case the glass mm. uh, cover uh but it isn't it's just that there's it's so shiny and the light is sort of being refracted <laughs> inside this curved sort of part of the right. of the face so i you know i i, I understand that uh, but a nice detail about it is that when you're out and about and you catch it in different lights mm. The watch takes on a very different character mm. at different times of day and under different lighting conditions. Mm. So at sunset, for example, the way the the sunlight is reflected off these shiny elements on the face of the watch is it almost looks like gold. It's like this sort of warm yellowish glow that it has. Right. Whereas under very white light, it's this shiny silver color. So it's it's quite nice having that variety. Mm. I think also that uh, speaks to the quality of the materials used in the mm. for those components, because probably cheaper grades of steel or you know whatever metal is being used for those components mm. may not have the same kinds of reflective properties that you described. That's possible, and how and the the way in which it's polished. Like I think the machines they use to polish them, you know, make a difference. Yeah, and stuff absolutely, like that. and that's probably yet one more reason why. Uh, Rolex has uh, sort of risen to the lofty heights that it has just because they mm. – I'm not sure that we've – we may have mentioned it before, but I don't know many people know this, but actually Rolex make all of the metal that goes into their watches. Mm. Now, when you think about that, that's <laughs> – yeah, they have their own gold forge <laughs> on site in Switzerland. <laughs> that's – yeah. I mean, yeah, when you think about that, that's pretty amazing that uh, it's not yeah. not just they bring in some massive ingot of, of metal and then, you know – shave off parts and, and carve out, you know, watch bits out of them. But actually, all of the me metallic components, which is most of the watches, because mm. uh, they're mostly all metal, they're all made from metal that they make themselves, which is, mm. which that's another reason why Rolexes are so expensive, just because uh, you're not just paying for the heritage and the design and the craftsmanship, you're also paying for all of the R&D that goes into actually creating those metals, which is, right. which is amazing. And I think those, um, the alloys that they use are an industry secret. Like I think yeah. that's a, a part of, of their sort of IP, if you like. Yeah. Um, I think, though, that, um, yes, so the, the aspect of the face design sort of having some uh, reflective nature to the environment mm. in a figurative sense and in a physical like a real sense like it's actually reflecting the light mm. but also that you know i'm looking at this in a sunset so you look down at your watch and it reflects that i think that is that is 
one kind of appeal. Mm. But then, of course, the other kind of appeal is the sort of consistency uh, of, you know, a matte design that has no reflective components. You know, that you look down at it and in pretty much all kind of lighting and all sort of situations and in all environments, aside from pitch black, mm-hmm. it looks the same. Mm-hmm. And that, that is another kind of appeal of that style of watch design, just because there's a, there's a kind of reassuring sort of consistency about that. And that is one of the reasons that I, I think, for me, that the sort of the romance of watches and travel they they go together so well mm. because one thing I like, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere uh, in, in this completely sort of foreign environment uh, and you are, mm. you know, as we described earlier, you know, you're sort of hyper observant of what's going around. You're trying to figure things out. Mm. For me, there's like a sense of comfort to look down onto your wrist and to see that, you know, that design looking back at you as being totally consistent with what you expect it to mm. be and exactly the same wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Mm. Yes, okay, this is all very, you know, finger-wavy, airy-fairy kind of uh, stuff. But when we're talking about the sort of deeper level of of what we appreciate in watch designs, for me mm-hmm. personally, I, I'm on that that side of it where I, I really like the, mm. the watch face to be like utterly consistent regardless of where mm. I am or what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, no, that is true. That is nice. That is... That is a feature that I feel my Stover Marine Original also has. Mm. Uh, that I that I really like it for. Yeah, because just because I have this new one that I've just bought doesn't lessen my appreciation for the Marine Original uh, at all, mm. really. And I still wear both of them, mm. and uh, they they definitely do sort of appeal to different sides of my personality and different feelings like i you know i i make an actual choice every morning when i decide which to put on Mm. uh which is you know based on a number of things like what i'm going to be doing that day but also just how i feel and Mm. and it's it's a bit of a contradiction but i like having both the variety and the consistency Mm. if you know what i mean i know what you mean like the variety but also that when i choose this one especially the Marine Original, I know exactly what I'm choosing. Yeah, I know what you mean. One watch that I was very much looking forward to seeing in the metal mm-hmm. and um, very happy to find in that shop at, in Dubai Airport was um, mm. the Tudor Black Bay series. Yes. I went actually, I, I went to have a look at these before I before I got this watch. Mm. I went for one last run to look at all the other watches I might be interested in right. <laughs> just to make sure that this was definitely the one that I wanted. Right, right. And so I went on a big, I, I actually spent a day trying a whole load on and the Tudor Black Bay were high on that list. Right. I, I, they're very nice, especially the new GMTs. Did they have any of those in? Oh, they did. Oh, <laughs> oh they did. Um, yeah. So uh, what I was, for those who don't know the, the Tudor design, so Tudor is kind of like, I mean, some people might think of it as the poor man's Rolex, but they are, I think they originally, you have to, I don't know the history so well, but I guess they started off mm-hmm. as a, as a sub brand of Rolex, was it? Or uh, Yeah, I think they still are like owned by Rolex. Right. But in, um, you know, recent decades, uh, Tudor has definitely sort of established a style and a, a design language of their own, mm. as well as a, a strong heritage of their own as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, is... Uh, you know what makes their uh, reputation and their um, 
legacy today. Anyway, one of the sort of key features of the Tudor design language is the very unusual design of the hour hand. Mm. And I say, well, not maybe unusual. Well, I guess, yes, unusual, because nobody else does it like that. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> if you imagine that the hour hand, if, for example, if it is pointing directly upwards, then the top of the hour hand has a diamond on it. A, a diamond should be clear here. <laughs> right. Not not the precious stone. Sorry. A diamond. A shape. <laughs> it's a square that is turned at 45 degrees. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, not, not, a, not a diamond stone, no. But, um, no. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very distinctive and uh the 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 purpose of it was that when tudor was manufacturing military watches mm. the idea was that they wanted to make the hour hand so unmistakably different from the minute mm-hmm. hand that mm. you would you would glance at it and you wouldn't even need to you know spare a neuron to figure out that that is the hour right. hand and that is the uh, right, right. that is the minute hand and it mm. they definitely succeeded because it is very very distinctive and that's the mm. sort of key feature of tudors that you'd notice so yeah. having seen countless pictures of these online, mm. I was really, really eager because I've never actually seen a Tudor in real life before, mm. ever. Uh, and so I was really eager to actually see one, mm-hmm. to see what that kind of diamond flake shaped hour hand looks like mm. and to see whether or not, I mean, to be honest, the pictures, yeah, it's kind of, it's sort of. I can see the appeal of the distinctiveness of it and the uniqueness of it, but mm-hmm. basically to my eyes it just kind of looks a bit weird, <laughs> mm. like a bit sort of – it's so far out of the, the rest of the design. Well, maybe not that far out of the it's, – it's, it's quite chunky. Yeah. Like it's, it's large. It's taken me a very long time to get used to it. Yeah, you, you definitely – I think the, the design of it is excellent in the sense that if you want to make the hour hand different from the minute hand, mm. one good thing that you can do – which incidentally my watch does, is you can make the hour hand visible behind the minute hand. Mm. So in the case of the Tudor, because it's this massive diamond-shaped flake, mm-hmm. uh, like this, this huge uh, yeah, diagonal square bulge underneath the, mm-hmm. the minute hand, you definitely see it there. So yeah, unfortunately, when I saw them in the cabinet and I looked down and I saw the, that distinctive shape and I thought, nah, no, it still looks weird. Mm. interesting (laughs) to me yeah Um, so i'm still not used to it yet Mm. yeah i mean it is it's a funny thing Uh, i i think there's more and more with with watches because there are definitely elements to design and to the to your taste in watches Mm. that are very much a part of your personality and that something in you just reacts badly to and you're never going to like. Right. And then there are other things that your taste can change quite dramatically over time. Mm. And sometimes it's a case of getting used to it. Sometimes it's a case of just being exposed to lots of other things and then eventually realising sort of the fuller context of where this design comes from and how it fits in with, you know, all the other designs that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But for whatever reason, there are... There are these two categories. And the funny thing is, it's difficult to tell beforehand when you see something that you don't like, which of those categories it's in. Mm. So for the longest time, I thought that snowflake hand on the... I don't know why it's called the snowflake hand. I can't think of anything less delicate and snowflake-like right. <laughs> than the hour hand on a Tudor watch. But that that design, 
I just thought it was, you know, a design that I hated and I would never like it. Right. And I very much thought it was in the first category. Mm. But I, I've completely turned around on it now and I actually quite like it. Mm. Uh, and it's it's really grown on me and I never would have predicted that. So it's, it's a funny thing. It's a bit um, like some people might argue that, uh, you know, if you're going to be spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a watch, why would you choose something that you need to get used to? Or maybe it works the other way around because obviously by the time that you decide to spend that many, right. that many thousands of dollars, you've already gotten used to it and you've now find it appealing right. enough. Or or you're the, exactly. the kind of person who... I, mean, I think many, many things, many expensive things in life involve getting used to, right? I suppose. Like, you know, you could apply that to whiskey as well. Mm. For example, more expensive whiskeys. Right. Sometimes if you taste them having not had much whiskey before you'd hate them mm. because you, you just haven't had enough experience with all the different sort of flavors and the different palettes that are available to have have got used to it and, and learn what it's like. So I don't think that necessarily invalidates the appeal of something. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it certainly is the case with my Parker Jota, <laughs> which is not a, a several thousand dollar you know piece of exquisite engineering. Mm-hmm. It is a piece of exquisite engineering, but it does certainly doesn't cost that much. But uh, mm. just as a recap on the what I mentioned last episode, I bought this mm-hmm. Parker Jotter pen, which is this classic ballpoint pen because I like ballpoint mm. pens. And you were still trying to get used to it at the time. I was still trying to get used to it, and now I am happy to say that I am used to it, and I mm-hmm. absolutely love it. Oh, really? Oh, that is good. It's it's very different. Like you, it does definitely take a lot of getting used to because the barrel is so thin at the end, mm. and you you find yourself sort of wanting to grip it really hard to prevent your fingers from sliding down it because there's no kind of contouring or anything. Right, right. It's just this sort of, you know, cylinder of metal. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the the combination of the actual writing feel with the, the Parker cartridge mm-hmm. uh, and just the this absolutely iconic classic design of the, of the, mm. the piece as a whole, mm-hmm. yeah, means that um, it, it sort of... I don't know. It just comes together so nicely. And now that I'm sort of used to having my fingers much more close together at the end when I'm when I'm writing, mm. uh, it's it's just fantastic. So yes, I did get used to this. Uh, I don't know what two hundred crown purchase <laughs> that I have here, as opposed to like a whatever it is, like two twenty thousand crowns for a for a Rolex or whatever uh, Tudor, whatever it is. Uh, so. Uh. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah. I am uh, eternally jealous of your ever-growing, ever-fruitful watch collection. <laughs> uh, two Omegas now, was it? Uh, yes. It, well, it is. The, you know, the one being a, a vintage uh, Omega. Right. I was looking that up. I'm thinking of changing the the face on that, the, you know, the glass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The face, it's plastic, the one that comes with it. And I think it's original from like the late 40s, early 50s right. when this watch was made. But it's scratched mm. in a few places, as plastic as want to do. And it kind of gets in the way of the enjoyment of the, the watch as a whole because the face is in beautiful condition. Mm. And it's such a waste to have like the little shadows mm. that the scratches cast onto that face. When you glance down at it. Is it actually possible to get some kind of replacement glass for that? I think it is possible to do these sorts of things. The question is whether it's a very good idea because, you know, with vintage watches, they say that, you know, if, you, if you're ever going to resell it, people want 
all original parts and stuff like that. Right. Well, you could always. Uh, so I'm a little bit torn as to what to do, but I, I suppose you could keep the old yeah. one and put it back on. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to sell it or whatever. I don't really know where I would begin to go and you know find somebody who can do that sort of work. Yeah, if um, if depending on how the the glass is attached to the the case of the watch, it may be mm-hmm. if if it's because um, there's, there's a few different ways that they do that. Um, but the, mm. if it is a case of just a screw on top, uh, then if you could find, I don't really know how you would. I mean, you obviously take it to a watchmaker and ask, right? But right. Um, if it is a very, very common, popular design of watch, then there may be people who've made aftermarket things for it. But yeah. I can definitely recommend um, a double-sided AR, like anti-reflection coating. Mm. So it's anti-reflection coated on the underside and on the top side. Mm. If there is somebody doing sort of uh, drop-in replacements for the top glass and you have that option, mm. then uh, it will enhance your appreciation of that face design hugely mm. because uh, all of a sudden now there is no reflection from the glass at all. So it's basically, mm. you know, basically always completely transparent. Mm. I just, my um, de facto, it came with uh, a the, the default sort of... Um, uh, glass that it comes with has no AR mm-hmm. coating on it at all, mm-hmm. which means that if you hold it at a certain angle, mm. you'll be looking at reflections of lights in the room in the watch face. Right, right. And yeah, de facto's um, chief designer, engineer, salesperson, and de facto is a one-person company. Right. But, uh, <laughs> he's, he. He sent me a, um, a new glass for it that was that had the anti-reflection coating on the both sides, and mm-hmm. wow, what an improvement! It's like mm. now, no matter what angle you hold it at, it it always looks exactly the same. Which, as I mentioned before, which is something that I like. So yeah, uh, yeah, no, I should definitely mm. look into it and, and see what my options are. And this new one is uh, the first, I guess, the first real luxury watch I've bought because the the other Amiga I had is vintage and is also from an age like i don't think amiga were as much of a luxury brand in the 40s 50s as they are now right um i think they pivoted towards luxury after the big sort of quartz revolution happened and they were worried about going out of business Mm. and wondering you know how they can stay afloat and they decided they could either pitch towards you know more mainstream quartz race to the bottom make it as cheap as you can kind of thing mm. or they could pivot towards luxury and they did the latter so i think they've they've become more of a luxury brand over time i think that's true mm. so this has sort of been my first experience with that i didn't get to buy it new because it's a limited edition watch and they've run out so i had to get it second hand but i got it from like a reputable uh second hand dealer and it came with all the original box and papers and all the stuff because it's only two years old. Mm. And so it was very nice. It's, it is a bit of a different world. Like the box that it comes in is huge. Right. <laughs> it's like, why does it need to be this big? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it comes with all these, it comes with this thick booklet, right. which is the manual, but I think it actually includes information about all the movements that Omega makes. Oh, wow. So it's super interesting. Right. Uh, and it's also in all the different languages and stuff. And it came on a very nice blue sort of snakeskin leather strap, which is the, the strap that originally came with this design. Yeah. Uh, but I have since bought an Omega NATO strap oh, to replace right. it. Oh, the Omega one that you got. Partly because I really love the, the, the original strap that it comes on. Mm. 
but I love it so much that I don't want to ruin it. Right. And it's not a strap that Amiga sells separately. Right. They made it specifically for this limited edition watch. I see. So just as there are only, you know, 2,998 units of this watch in the world, mm. there are also only 2,998 straps. And so if I get water on it and I damage it, it's not going to be easy to get another one. Mm. So I decided to take that off and keep it for sort of special occasions and get this other NATO strap to replace it, mm. which Amiga sells a very nice, extremely high quality uh, NATO strap in blue, which goes very nicely. So, yeah, it's been nice. It's uh, It's been a bit of a grail watch for me, which is a word that gets thrown around a lot in the watch community of sort of one of these watches that you, that that is, you know, quite expensive but you really want and you just dream of having one day and then you save up and eventually hopefully uh you can get it Mm. and this is one that i i've mentioned on the show before i've regretted not buying when i originally saw it uh when it was still new in 2016 Mm. and i first moved here to america right but i wasn't really in a position to buy it then and since then i have been saving and i've been looking around other watches as well but it kept coming back to this one uh, and uh, it never somehow never lost its charm over that time. So in a way, it was quite good that I didn't just sort of buy it on a whim, but that I spent all that time looking around and making sure. And eventually thought, you know what? No, I still this still is really the the one that I want. Mm. So I'm going to go on record and say that this is going to be my last watch purchase for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Because it, it it was definitely a bit more than the other ones, but um, but it is nice to have finally got you know the, the one that I've been sort of looking at for all these years. That's fantastic. I mean, you're very very fortunate, but it's it's also um, like to be able to say yes, this was my my holy grail watch, the one that uh, I always wanted, you know, and to be able to say that uh, you. Um, Financially and as well as uh, uh, emotionally, you found that you know. I think that's uh, that's that's wonderful. I don't know what my holy grail watch is now. Mm. It took me five years to find this one that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Just like looking through sort of you know endless forum posts and pictures of of different watches and stuff, and mm. but now like. I don't actually have the means to buy an an expensive watch, but if I did, mm-hmm. like what would it be? Mm-hmm. I guess the the one that you're probably thinking of that might that might be a candidate for my Holy Grail watch is the it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, is the, is the <laughs> Rolex GMT Master Two, mm. the pep, the famous Pepsi dial one. Mm-hmm. I don't really know about that anymore because yes, when I look at it, I think, oh yeah, there it is. Mm. But that obviously is a watch face that is full of shiny surfaces. and <laughs> It is, yeah. And if it wasn't for its sort of heritage and its deep history, I wouldn't have guessed that this would be a watch that you would like at all, really. No, exactly. That's that's the other thing. Like, it's more the... It's not the design of it, and it's more the, the I guess, the legacy of it mm. and the concept behind it and the just sort of mm. incredible elegance of that design solution, which is appealing. Mm. The The one other that is, you know... Potentially, I've always looked at and thought, oh, that's really nice mm-hmm. as a design mm. uh, is um, one that I'm just going to send a picture to you now of, which I've sent to you a few times before. Ah, yeah, the, the Rolex Explorer 2 
polar, I think they call it, yeah. the, the white face one. Yeah, so yeah. this one I've always thought, yeah, that's a really nice watch. So this one is, uh, it obviously is a GMT watch. It functions differently from uh, Rolex's GMT Master mm -hmm. uh, in that this has a fixed bezel around the edge and then you rotate this, um, you, you set independently this orange 24-hour hand for mm. the, the second time zone instead mm. of rotating a bezel around the edge. Mm. So it's it's more practical than the GMT Master 2. It's, it's more practical than the GMT. The GMT Master 2 also works in this way. The GMT Master 2, is that the one you can actually set the the GMT hand independent? You can set the 24-hour the, the hand independent. The GMT Master 2, you can do both. It has okay. a rotating bezel and you can set the 24-hour hand independent. So it's the GMT Master is the one that... Uh, you have to basically, basically the 24-hour hand is just simply a hand that moves at half the speed of the 12-hour hand and you've got to kind of keep on winding it to reset the time. Right. You've got to rotate the bezel to set the time. The 24-hour hand, I think the way that it works, I'm not 100% certain about this, but I think the way that it works is that it's a fixed offset from the hour hand. So that if you change the time, the 24-hour hand will move. Yeah. But it will always be that's right at, in the same place or one of two places relative to the hour that's hand. Right. Yeah, uh, and then the way that you set your time zone is to rotate the bezel so that that offset matches the offset of the the time zone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Um, so the Explorer is much more uh, simple mm -hmm. in the sense that you, you all you can do is just you, you just move the. Uh, the, the GMT hand to, to set the time for the second time zone. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Like this is the one, this one and the GMT Master 2, the Pepsi one. These two, I guess, yeah. I don't like Holy Grail. Like if, if I actually had, what is it? I think it's about 6,000. I think that, that's probably more like 9,000. But Yeah, I, I don't know. I Probably. Yeah. Cause I, there's, a, there's a lot of writing on Rolex watch faces, which, mm -hmm. <laughs> which has never really been very appealing mm -hmm. like the like listing all of the mm -hmm. features of the watch on the face like it's, it's a very casio th or casio obviously <laughs> or may have may have taken that cue from rolex but it's like yes i know what the features of my watch are and i don't really need to be reminded every time i look at it thank you very much yeah anyway this this, yeah, this design. i don't know maybe i mean maybe you don't maybe you're still looking maybe you don't have one yet i think i think a grail watch is one of those things that usually like you know right like you feel strongly oh yeah this is definitely the one right not mm, yeah i think well it is a rolex i quite like it you know for a rolex yeah but i think like you know but if you want to talk about sort of always coming back to something and saying oh that's mm -hmm. still and again that's really nice then this mm. is definitely uh, uh mm. falls into that category too so yeah yeah no it is it is a nice design i think as far as the pepsi gmt is concerned going back to the tudor that we were talking about earlier I'm actually starting to think that I might prefer the Tudor Black Bay GMT design mm. to the Rolex Pepsi GMT. It's, I mean, it, it's much cheaper, which is also a bonus, but I think if I had the money to buy either and I was just choosing which one to get, I might actually choose the Tudor over the Rolex. Yeah, why, why is that? I like the design of the bezel a bit more. Mm. It's less blingy, for want of a better word. Um, it's a bit simpler, a bit yeah. uh, more understated. And it doesn't have the Cyclops magnifying glass over the date window, mm. which I'm not a big fan of mm. on the Rolexes. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah. It's a hugely attractive watch, really. Mm. That hour hand, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I guess probably what a catalyst for 
getting used to that hour hand would be probably researching all of Tudor's line. Mm. And then you would probably slowly realize that that is a, you know, that is a, um, a key part of their, you know, iconic design legacy and the design language that sets a Tudor apart from anything else mm. is that hour hand and that second hand. The second hand also has a 45 degree angled square. <laughs> so that, that aspect. And when you, when you sort of, mm. Because I'm I'm looking at right now at a picture on my of my on my phone of the the Black Bay GMT with the Pepsi bezel, mm. and when you hold it back from at about the sort of distance that it would be when you're looking at it on your wrist, mm-hmm. there is a nice sort of sense of all this geometric shapes mm-hmm. like triangles and circles and diamonds, <laughs> mm. uh, and not many other watches sort of do that. It doesn't. This sort of looks like a playful collection of little shapes, whereas most other watches tend to immediately present you with this more utilitarian kind of mm. display of the time. Mm. I guess the the Rolex designs with their uh, also extremely iconic hour hand with the little uh, sort of um, Y shape inside the circle. Mm-hmm. That's also um, intended to sort of set the hour hand apart, but it has less of the sort of geometric appeal that the Tudor face does. Right, it's a little more subtle in a way. I mean, also, this isn't across all Tudors. I think this is very much a kind of Black Bay, Mm. Pelagos thing. But like some of the other things, like the Tudor North flag, uh, which is uh, another one of their flagship. In fact, a lot of people talk about the Tudor North flag because it's, it's a design that Rolex has nothing like it. So it's an example of Tudor, you know, having stuff that is really completely unique to Tudor as a brand right. that is not like a cheaper version of some Rolex thing. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, that's got much more of a traditional looking arrow hand. Mm. But it's the chunky sort of Black Bay, Pelagos. And then I think the earlier Submariner models very much look like the Tudor ones. It even had the Tudor style hour hand with the circle with the little Y in it. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, they've grown on me. Well, looking at them right now, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them Grail watches, but I certainly wouldn't turn one down if you want to buy one for me, Danny. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'll take the Pepsi Dial. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>